This morning we are uh, returning back to the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. Uh, We ended last week in chapter 2 and verse 18, and we're going to be skipping over a few verses this week. Not that they're not important, because they are, but just for our track through the book of Philippians this morning, we're going to skip down to chapter 3 this morning. We'll be reading verses 1 to 11. So if you're able, please rise as we hear the word of the Lord this morning. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I gain, I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So far, the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we give you thanks indeed for this, your word. Holy Spirit, guide these words, not as my words, but as yours. That the truth that we find in them may be applied to the people that are gathered here today. Holy Spirit, go before me, go before us. Wash over us with the power of your truth. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Do you ever wonder what it would be like if you were someone else? One of my favorite musical artists asked this question in one of his songs, and I'm just going to be, I'm just going to quote a song, and you may laugh, but some of you may know this song. I know some of you do. But the, the question is this, could I have been? Could I have been a parking lot attendant? <laughs> could I have been a millionaire in Bel Air? Could I have been lost somewhere in Red Rocks? A good place to get lost, might I add. Could I have been your little sister? Could I have been anyone other than me? These are intriguing, intriguing questions, and the, and the answers that we provide to these questions tell a lot about how we go about our life. It tells us a lot about how we approach life and approach the challenges that we face each and every day. Or perhaps the biggest question that Dave Matthews and frankly, that each of us is asking is, who is the real me? Who am I? Who are you? Could I have been somebody else? Could I have been you or your sister or your brother or your grandpa or your grandma? Could I have been somebody different than me? But really, who is the real me? For many of us, we, we don't know the answer to that question. Who am I? What makes me me? What makes me tick? What makes Ryan, Ryan? 
What makes you, you? The context we find ourselves living in today is one that's not only asking the question of ourselves, but also the people around us. Who is the real you? I thought I knew you, but perhaps I don't really know you after all. Who is the real me? But who is the real you? And can I trust the real me? And can I trust the real you? Do you feel this tension? Do we know this tension? I think we do. I I feel this tension sometimes. At times, it's almost palpable. We can almost touch it. It's everywhere, and yet also at the same time, it's nothing that we can grab onto. We're not quite sure what to do with it. So how do we go about navigating these weird, strange, foggy, misty waters of not really fully understanding ourselves and not really fully understanding the people that are next to us? What does this look like? Who is me and who are you? Paul, in this letter, is addressing these very issues. Now, it doesn't, he doesn't come out and say, who is the real you? But he is asking that question, I think. He's answering that question because there's this group of people in Philippi that's impacting a lot of the way that his dear friends are thinking, acting, living their lives. And this group of people is, is called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers are a group of people that say, well, we believe Jesus, but we also think there's more to it than that. We believe that to be really a Christian and to, and to really believe Jesus, you also have to be a firm follower of the law of Moses. You still have to obey all of the Levitical laws. You still have to do all of these things. And they want Jesus and some more stuff. And they were a vocal faction. And they were asking these questions of the church at Philippi. Well, I thought you were this. You've been a Jew forever, but now you're saying something different. Do you believe that? Is that really what you think after generations of us doing it this way that you can just throw that aside and now this is the real you? This is the new you? Are you sure about that? Who are you? And you want to abandon the law? I don't get it. And who is your neighbor? We don't understand. Who is the neighbor that for generations has been faithful to the laws, faithful to these, to these covenants, to this, to this thing called circumcision? Really, what are they asking? Is the, is the real you a Jew or a Christian or something else? Or maybe you're somehow both. But all the while, the church at Philippi was experiencing fear and doubt, not only from the Roman Empire and, and the emperor and the, the centurions that were in town, but also from this group of Judaizers who was asking them the question their very existence of, who are you? They didn't trust one another. They were misunderstanding each other and questioning rule of the day. Hmm. Sounds a bit like 2020 in the global world. In chapter 3 of Philippians, the question that Paul is fundamentally asking and answering is, what defines who you are? How would you define who you are? What is the real you? Is it your pedigree? Is it your status? Is it your political establishment? Or or what about the things you have accomplished or, or not accomplished? Is that who the real you is? Paul's argument by the world's standards He's better than most. 
He's, he's better than all y'all. And he, he lays that out for us. There's nobody that can compare to him and his diligence and his zeal and his passion by the standard of the Judaizers. Paul's the best of them. He says, you all get nothing on me. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, a zealot, a persecutor of the church. You want to talk about what it means to be a Judaizer? I was you. And that's not who Paul is. So then I come back to the question again for all of us. What defines the real you? Who makes you you? What makes you you? And so what does Paul say that makes you the real you? Paul makes, a, makes the argument upon which the entirety of the gospel is based, doesn't he? That it's the righteousness of Jesus given to you by Jesus through faith is what defines you. This is who you are in Christ. It's His righteousness given to you. As a Christian, Paul says in verse 9 that everything that he has defined by not having his own identity and righteousness, those things are rubbish. And everything that he is comes from Jesus. Everything else is garbage. And let's just say quickly that that's putting it nicely. The real you is found only in the righteousness given to you by the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He then tells us that there's a wonderful reward that comes from that. This wonderful reward that we receive through this righteousness is Jesus Himself. It may not be what you expected it to be because in our circles, I think oftentimes when we, when we think about, okay, this, this transfer, this great transfer, this righteousness of Jesus transferred to us, we, we like to think and talk in terms of justification and sanctification and all of these big theological terms that we like to banter about with, don't we? That's how we roll here in our cultures and our context, right? But what Paul is saying is, yes, all that's true, but there's something even more fundamental at stake here. All of this stuff that he's talking about boils down to one simple thing. Knowing Jesus. About a relationship. About you and Jesus. This is what it boils down to. How often do we think in those terms? I must confess with you honestly, I, I don't think in those terms as often as I should. Because I do think of the big things, of theological impact and importance and the things that we read and study. But it comes down to understanding my Savior. It comes down to understanding this is who I am. Because this is who Jesus is. Paul, in this letter to his dear friends, says that the reward we receive, the wonder of it all, is knowing Christ. Everything that motivates Paul is done in order that he would know Christ better, deeper, more intimately than he did before. And so again, I just want to be transparent and honest with you this morning. And I hope that you're honest with yourself this morning. And ask the question, what is our motivation this morning? Is everything that you do in order that you would know Jesus better? Mine, most days, not so much. 
Oftentimes my motivation is, how do I make myself better? How do, how do I make my impact on this city and this church more powerful? How is it that I can make sure that y'all think I'm really great? Too often, however, it's not about knowing Christ more intimately and better than I did yesterday. So this passage is convicting for me. It's convicting for me personally. And I must confess another thing to you this morning. Once again, these are very familiar words to us. We've read them, many of us, a million times. But it recalibrated me this week. And I had a challenging week this week of trying to figure out what, why am I being convicted? Why, why is it and how is it that, I, that I'm going to put these things together in, in some type of message this morning? And the conviction was, is, Ryan, you don't have the same motivation that Paul's talking about. Do you know Jesus more? Are you in Christ the way He desires to be with you? And so I'm not preaching to you this morning, necessarily. This is a message for Ryan. And what does this look like? And yes, this is the pastor saying, sometimes I don't feel this way. And understanding that my Savior desires a relationship with me. Even all, all those things are true about me. And I would be willing to bet that if those things are true about me, chances are they're true about you. So, in this passage this morning, Paul wants us to know what it looks like to know Christ. It's not about reading your Bible more. That's not how you know Jesus more. It helps. It's not about more quiet time. It's not about more Bible studies. It's not about more, 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 more. It's about a relationship. It's about being It's about existing. It's about knowing Jesus as a person and Him knowing you. So how do we do this? How do we know Jesus in that way? How how do we get there? It seems to me Paul lays that out for us in these 11 verses of Philippians chapter 3. Let's see if we can find the answers to how is it that I can figure out who the real me is by knowing Christ more. So I'm going to break down these familiar verses for us into three categories like a good Presbyterian pastor will do. Knowing Christ is rejecting our own righteousness. Knowing Christ is receiving His righteousness and knowing Christ is rejoicing in a relationship. So let's look at that first section, verses 1 to 6. We see the first answer unfold of how do I know Christ? It's, it's rejecting my own righteousness. There are some strange and unique verses going on. There's some twists and turns that Paul describes here, especially in verses 1 and 2, where he starts out these verses and he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and then it is safe for you. And then right after that, in some weird kind of curveball, right? We talked about baseball last week. This week, Paul literally throws us a curveball and says, Rejoice! 
But then look out for the dogs and the evildoers and those who what? Mutilate the flesh? What? Where are you going here, Paul? It's almost like the ADD kicked in or something like that. And he just didn't know. What, it's just, oh yeah, watch out for these guys. There are some gray areas as to who and what Paul is talking about. And perhaps there's information that we simply don't have. Maybe there's a backstory that we're not uh, aware of. Some kind of inside conversation that we're not reading the whole story, but we get this one letter. Perhaps. But we do have a lot of information that's given to us. And so let's just take the information that we do have and apply that to, to what it means to knowing Christ. What we do know, fairly certain, is that the dogs and the evildoers and the flesh mutilators, is that even a word, mutilators? Those are the Judaizers. These people who are saying, well, you to, to believe in Christ means you have Jesus plus all of the law, or Jesus plus circumcision, and that's the connection of the flesh mutilizers. Mutilation, I should say. And once again, this faction is, is claiming you must follow strictly the Mosaic law. He's referring specifically to that sacrament, that covenant ceremony of circumcision. And the flesh connection is there is what he's talking about. And it's not so much just in that particular activity, but everything that surrounds that. So for the Jewish person, this things of circumcision had far greater importance than what it does for us today, right? So in that day, in that time, circumcision, circumcision meant an identity. It meant all that you were. It was a sign and a seal, yes, but what was it signifying? That you were God's people, yes, but it was also an ex- exclusivity kind of document or, or ceremony, that you are this and you are not that, right? So if you are of the circumcision, then you are a Jewish person. You are a child of God and you are not a Gentile. You are not one of those people over there, but you're one of us over here. This is who you and how you identify yourselves. There were social implications as well, right? There were dietary implications, And these are just some of the major things that jump off the page as we consider what it means to be a Jewish person at that day and age. So they lived their lives with a bit of a a stiff arm to the rest of the world saying, we are over here and you are over here. We don't go about life the same way that you do. And how we understand that, and one of the identifiers was, is circumcision. It sets us apart. It makes us different. Right? So... We are tied to these things. But what's happening? What's happening here in the church in the city of Philippi? The very essence of their existence before this time is tied up into the law and circumcision. It's tied with the covenant promise of circumcision. But is this the real them? This is what Paul is asking them. Does that make you you? Does circumcision, does the law, is that who you are as the people of God? Is that what defines you as the people of God? When I read this passage, I think to myself, how could the Judaizers be so blind? How could they miss the very thing that's literally standing in front of them? How could the church in Philippi be be tempted by such teaching? After all, Paul was their friend, their mentor, their pastor. And if Paul was my friend, my mentor, my pastor, I would like to think there's no way I would doubt any other teaching because it's Paul after all. 
What's happening? They're being tempted. They're questioning their identity. They're questioning their existence. They're questioning everything that they have. The message may not be circumcision, but it certainly is a message of diligence from the Judaizers. A message of flying straight. A message of identity. And we understand that very well, don't we? In order to be a true Christian, in order to really be identified as as a follower of Jesus, you have to fly straight. You have to fly on the narrow. And you have to do this. You have to do that. Maybe I could set this scene up a little bit better for us this morning. Consider something with me. What are some of the things you treasure? For the church in Philippi, they treasured circumcision because in some very real sense it gave them an identity. And so it was being questioned. Is this who you are? What are some of the things that you treasure this morning? What are some of the things that you benefit from? Some of these things may be physical. Money, job, houses, cars. could be physical. The list goes on and on. Perhaps these things are not physical, but rather they're accomplishments, right? Or accolades, honor, title, status, positions, degrees. Privileges. Are these what define the real you? Paul tells his friends (laughs) he has more of these things than anybody else. He has more privileges. He has more titles. He has more glory. He has more cred than anybody else. As far as these things are concerned, he is faultless and blameless. A passionate persecutor of the church. Is this the real Paul? The underlying element in Paul's writing in this letter says that that's not him. And that's what he says in verse 8, right? All of these things, all of these titles, all of these accolades, all of these things that most would treasure and consider Paul is awesome because of these things, he calls them Rubbish, garbage, and I really, really, really wish I could use the actual word that's there. Because it's not just garbage, it actually is more in line with human excrement. I think we get the idea. Paul says all the things he's accomplished, all the things that the world sees that Paul that makes the Paul Paul according to the world, it's all that. Flush it away. It's all garbage. Because there's something greater, there's something more. So what Paul is saying to us is reject those righteousness. Reject our own selfish righteousness. Reject those things for those are not the things that make the real you, you. Reject this righteousness for as a fleeting wisp of what J.I. Packer calls self-absorbed religion. His quote in his great book, Knowing God, is this. There is nothing more irreligious than self-absorbed religion. I might even take that one step further and say there's nothing more irreligious than projecting that self-absorbed religion on somebody else. If you don't believe exactly the way I think, 
You're worthless. And you mean nothing to me. And we can fight and we can write things on social media and on the internet and we can think terrible things about one another because you don't believe exactly the way I believe. Reject our self-righteous, self-absorbed righteousness. For Paul calls those things rubbish, garbage, and the rest. So how do we know Christ? The first step in knowing Christ is rejecting our self-righteousness, our own righteousness as rubbish. But where do we go from there? If I can even begin to make that step and say, okay, I can, I can do that. Let's, let's just say I've done that. But then where do I go? After I've done that, what's my next step? If I'm able to reject these things, what do I do now? And this then is where it gets good. This is, this is where Paul gets into the nitty-gritty and the, and the good stuff, right? This, this is where it's really cool. But I also understand that what I've just said about rejecting this righteousness is, is hard. It's hard to hear and, and not easy to do. But remember that Paul is writing this letter to his dear friends as an encouragement to encourage his friends in the gospel and grace. And so please hear me. I I want to do the same here this morning. I want to encourage you in in the gospel, in grace and in love and, and, and what it looks like to know Christ. My desire is to do that, to encourage you, to encourage all of us to what Paul says in verses 7 to 9. Paul casts this righteousness, or as Packer calls it, the self-absorbed religion. He casts it off because there's something far greater than circumcision or righteousness, self-righteousness. There's something greater than that kind of identity that comes along with casting these things off. There's something far greater than honor. There's something greater than privilege. There's something greater than status, money, houses, cars, jobs, successes, fortunes, failures. There's something better. And that something is literally standing right in front of you. Not me. It's literally standing in front of you. Reject these things and and receive something else. The motivation for rejecting these things is found in verse 8. You see that? When I reject these things, I receive something else. Let's look at verse 8 here once again. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of what? Why does he count it? Why does he cast it all off? Because he knows Jesus as his Lord and his Savior. The reward is a relationship. The reward is this very thing. And to receive this righteousness that comes from Jesus, the motivation for rejecting is to receive. To reject the righteousness that we think we have and receive the righteousness from Jesus. I receive Christ himself, he says. So what does that mean? When we hold on to the things that we think define us, we're not able to hold on to the thing that actually does define us. When our hands are wrapped around our understanding, our, our, and when our minds are wrapped around, and when our lives are wrapped around our self-absorbed religion, we can't think of anything else other than that. And so Paul's saying, set that aside to understand and to know something, someone else. Paul says in verse 8, he considers them rubbish because he gains, he receives Christ instead. All of those things we thought were great are not all that great. He then proceeds to tell us exactly what it means to receive Christ. 
In verse 9, once again, he rejects righteousness and he receives the righteousness of Jesus, the kind of righteousness that only comes from Jesus. So verse 9 says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Do you see that? That comes from the law, but that which comes from the faith in Christ, the righteousness from the God that depends on faith. Sometimes it's good to write things down. I'm not always very good at that. Some of you are very good about writing things down and making lists of pros and cons. I have a big decision I need to make, so I'm going to write down the pros, I'm going to write down the cons, I'm going to connect the arrows and the dots and see which list, which side is greater or lesser than the other, and I'll make my decision accordingly. Paul essentially has written these things all down for us. And in one column, he puts all of his accomplishments, and he lays them out for us. All of these things that the world says, you are tremendous and wonderful, and there's a list of all kinds of things. So that's one column. And the other side of the column is one line. Knowing Jesus. And that far outweighs all of the other stuff in the other column. Decisions made. It's the righteousness from Christ that he receives through Jesus that makes all the difference in the world. So maybe we can do that when we go home, even this afternoon. Write down all the things you treasure. Write down all of the things that you think make you you. Write down your titles. Write down your degrees. Write down your job. Write down your salary. Write down your mortgage. <laughs> and then put it in the other column. Knowing Christ. And see which one weighs the other. You see, for it's knowing Christ and having His righteousness given to us that outweighs any and everything else. You see, because being adopted into the family of God for Paul is of far more value than anything else. We receive the honor of having our broken record restored. We receive righteousness that comes not from ourselves or our self-absorbed religion, once again as Packer calls it, but we receive a righteousness that comes from Jesus by faith and through this amazing grace. The kind of grace that took a cross, that went to the grave in order that our righteousness could be rejected and is rejected. And yet the righteousness of Jesus is given to us. Friends, on the cross, Jesus took the nails to pierce our stubborn and calloused righteousness. He took the nails to pierce our callous and passionate self-accomplishment in order that we might be softened by the reality of His accomplishment. The kind of grace that gives us a new identity, a new creation. Not in ourselves, but in what He has done for us. In His accomplishments, in His honor, in His grace, His accolades, His title of Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And if you remember last week, Paul described what that honor and accolade is. The honor and accolade that Jesus has given is the name above every name that every knee will bow and tongue confess that He is Lord. There is no greater honor, no greater accolade. There is no greater righteousness. And He gives it to you. Or maybe can we put it this way? He gives us Himself. How do we know Christ? 
We reject our righteousness. We receive his righteousness. And then we rejoice. Paul in verse 1 of Philippians 3 says rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice for he is our Lord. How do we know Christ? We rejoice. Paul concludes this section of Scripture by saying that all of this is for one thing. To know Jesus. And to be found knowing Jesus. Do you see specifically what Paul desires to know most? It's not his perfect life that he's talking about. It's not Jesus' perfect life even. It's not even Jesus' death even. But rather, what does he say? In verse 11, that by all means possible, I may attain the resurrection. Let me go back to 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Not by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul doesn't talk about the death, the life of Jesus. He talks about knowing Christ is knowing what the resurrection means for him. Is, is knowing Christ as a living Christ, as his Savior. Paul wants to know Christ today. But in the resurrection, he not only knows Jesus today, he knows Jesus tomorrow, he knows Jesus next month, and he knows Jesus forever because Jesus has defeated death. And he rose from the grave and he lives forever. So to know Christ means to know Christ not only for today, but for eternity. This surpasses any accolade or honor that Paul could ever even imagine to have. To know, for him to know Christ for eternity is, is more than he can even comprehend. Nothing compares to being in a relationship with Jesus forever. And it's not so much, again, about the, the theological impact. It's not so much about how many angels are in a pen. It's not about all of these big concepts. It's simply about a relationship between you and Jesus, me and Jesus, us and Jesus. It's about a person to a person. And do we think of our faith in that way, in that manner? As a person loves you. So Paul doesn't want to discuss justification forever. He doesn't want to talk about sanctification forever. He doesn't want to play a harp forever, sitting and floating on a cloud. He wants his Savior forever. He wants to sit next to him. He wants to eat fish on the beach with his Savior forever. He wants to know him. He wants to know the one that loves him, loves him enough to die, to take the nails, loves him enough to go to a grave and to rise again and to be resurrected. And so Paul wants to know that resurrection, that glory, that righteousness. He wants to know Jesus. He wants to know Jesus in so much the way that the one who sacrificed his life for him was zealous for him. The one person who bled and died and rose again for him, he wants this kind of relationship. That's given to us by faith through the Holy Spirit, by grace. For this reason, he says to his dear friends, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord because we do have a relationship with him forever. And he's given everything for you. All of his righteousness, all of his life, all of his death, all of his resurrection is now yours. And that outweighs everything else. So together we rejoice. We rejoice in knowing 
Christ. So rejoice for it is in Christ is where we're defined. Who are you? What makes you, you? Jesus' righteousness given to you makes you, you. Rejoice in that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do rejoice. Rejoice for who you are and what you've done for us. And we give thanks to you. And so Lord, may we go from this place here on this day. Striving to know you more. But all the while knowing that you are the one that reaches out to us. You are the one that pulls us from death to life. Breathes new air into us and makes us new creatures. So hang on to us. Hold us tight by your grace and by your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.